If you go into any major bookstore, normally the, the largest number of books that you find in, in any particular store are self-help or self-improvement books. Did you know that? How many of y'all knew that? It's true. It's true. Any bookstore owner will tell you that this section is one of the most, if not the most, popular sections in their store, and that these books are just flying off the shelves. I recently browsed through the uh, self-improvement section of books at both Barnes & Noble and Books A Million, and here are a few of the titles of popular self-help books that I found. Listen to these titles. Overcoming Childhood Trauma, Prozac Nation, Young and Depressed in America, How to Stay Sane, Healing Your Emotional Self, a powerful program to help you raise your self-esteem, quiet your inner critic, and overcome your shame. That's a mouthful, isn't it? How about this one? Stopping the Pain, a workbook for teens who cut and self-injure. Grief Therapy, the Anxiety and Phobia Workbook, and this one, Healing Thoughts for Troubled Hearts. These are the kind of books that are being bought up left and right. Now, what should this tell us, believers? What should we learn from this? I'll tell you. Here's what we learn. We learn that the majority of people in our world today, whether they want to admit it or not, know deep down something is not right with us. And something is not right with the world around us. That's why books like Prozac Nation and How to Stay Sane are bestsellers in our bookstores today. People know that deep down something is off in us. Something is broken in us and in our world that needs fixing and people want answers, which is why books like these are being bought up left and right. Well, believers, we have the answer, don't we? We do. They would only listen to us, right? We know why things are not right in our world today. It's because we live in a broken world. The world is broken. And we, as people, are broken as well. We are. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about the fact that the world in which we live is broken and that we, as individuals, are broken as well. But we're not going to leave it at that, thank goodness, right? We're going to talk about a solution that has been provided as well. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 2. We're continuing our study through the book of John this morning, entitled Knowing Jesus from John. We began the study last week, and in this study, I told you last week that we're taking a chapter a week, and we're asking this question each week in the chapter we're in. What does this chapter teach us about Jesus? What can we learn about Jesus from this chapter? And this week we're in chapter 2, and we're going to be talking about knowing Jesus as Redeemer. Knowing Jesus as Redeemer. What we have in chapter 2 
are two stories, and within these two stories are four key truths that we must understand to know Jesus as our Savior, to know Him as our Rescuer, to know Him as our Redeemer. The first story is when Jesus turns water into wine. This was His uh, first miracle, and there are two key truths that we learn from this story that help us know Jesus as Redeemer. First, we learn in this story that our world is broken. First point, our world is broken. Look at John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So John begins this chapter by telling us about this wedding at Cana and Jesus's mom was in attendance along with Jesus and his disciples. Now when Leslie and I got married and I'm sure this is the case for many of you our wedding was pretty short. The uh, ceremony was about 15-20 minutes then we had a reception for about an hour an hour and a half and that was it. But, but at this time in ancient Jewish culture in the first century a wedding would have lasted about a week would have been a week-long celebration, a week-long party. That sounds exhausting to me. I don't know about you. But it does to me. But apparently the Jewish people at this time, they enjoyed, you know, a good party. They liked to party. And uh, the entire community would come out for this event, and the responsibilities of the host was to provide for the people who came. And in ancient Jewish culture, one of the things that the host provided their guests was wine. Well, at this particular party, there was a problem. At this wedding celebration, they run out of wine. Now, in this day, this is not a good thing. And at some parties today, it's not a good thing. But it especially wasn't in this day. This was a major faux pas. This was a major social blunder, a big-time mess-up that would have brought the celebration to an end all too soon. So this is the problem. This is the conflict in our story. Every good story has conflict, and this is the conflict in this story. They're at a wedding celebration, and they run out of wine. Now, why is this significant? What's the big deal here? Why is this detail so important? Why do we have this story in John's gospel? I mean, we learn in his gospel that there are a lot of things that he left out. A lot of stories about Jesus he left out. So why does he include this particular story? Well, well, two reasons, I think. One, because this was Jesus' first miracle. This was the, the miracle that really sparked the beginning of his miraculous ministry. So that's one reason. But another reason I believe John includes this story here is because it reveals to us a core truth in the Christian faith about our world. That the world in which we live, it is broken. It's broken. We live in a world that's broken. You know, at times we make plans. And they're good plans, smart plans, well-devised and organized plans, yet they fall flat. They fail. Anybody ever experience that? Yeah. Ever had a great plan in place and it fall through? This happens all the time, doesn't it? We live in a world that's frustrating. 
We live in a world that's broken. You can have a great plan in place, all your ducks in a row, and something will fall through. How many of y'all remember the 2010 national championship game, college football? Y'all know where I'm going with this, don't you? Texas has played well all year, and I imagine they were well prepared to play a top-ranked school like Alabama. What they hadn't planned on, however, was losing their star quarterback at the beginning of the game. Remember Colt McCoy? It was the opening drive, wasn't it? Injured his shoulder. Could not return. Leaving Texas to try to beat Alabama with a true freshman quarterback. Of course, they weren't able to do it. I'm still sort of bitter about it, in case you can't tell. I really am. Especially since I've got Alabama fans on Leslie's side of the family that remind me that they would have won anyways. Yeah, right. But these kind of things happen in the world in which we live. Because the world's broken. In a perfect world, Texas would win every national championship, right? Getting a big no from my A&M fans in here. I'm going to have them visit me after church. But my point is this. Our world is broken. And a broken world can ruin the best-made plans. And that's what's happening in this story. The host family had a great party plan, but their well-made plans are ruined by this frustrating and fallen world, and they run out of wine. But all is not lost. And the reason why is because though the world is broken, point number two, Jesus has come to redeem it. He has come to redeem it. Look at verses 3 through 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So we see here that Mary is helping serve at this wedding, probably because she's either related to the family involved or she's a close friend. And she's made aware of the problem and she gives it over to the proper person, the Lord Jesus. And notice how Jesus responds at first. He says, woman. Now, some people take issue with that. Think of Jesus being disrespectful. It's just lost in translation there, okay? That, that word that he uses there in the Greek is a, is a highly respectful uh, word, a highly respectful way to address a woman in that culture. So Jesus is being very respectful to his mother, yet he does give a rebuke. He does. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? What do you want me to do about it? My hour has not yet come. Now, some think it's strange here what Jesus says because it sounds like he's not going to do anything, but then he turns the water into wine. So, so what does Jesus mean here when he says, what does this have to do with me? What's he getting at? Well, in John's gospel, John spends a lot of time talking about Jesus's private ministry to specific individuals and how he avoided being revealed and in, in, in being found out publicly too soon. And, and he does this because he wants to avoid the misconceptions that many would have about him being the Messiah. So he's kind of working behind the scenes a little bit. So, so John's statements here show that Jesus is wanting to stay under the radar for a time and, and as he performs this great miracle. Look at verses 6 through 11. Now there were six stone, jar, stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. 
Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some, some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So, so here's what's going Going on here. Mary has gone to Jesus. She's let him know that the hosts have run out of wine and Jesus decides to do something about it. So he tells the servants to take six stone water jugs and, and each holding 20 to 30 gallons of water and, and to fill them up with water and to draw the water out and to take the water to the master of the feast. Now we're not really sure who this master of the feast is, what his responsibilities were. Some felt, you know, some feel he was, you know, either a head servant or a head waiter or a, a guest who is chosen to preside over the banquet. It's, it's unclear, but he's kind of the head honcho. And the uh, servants do just that. They take these jugs, they fill them with water, they draw them out, they take them to the master of the feast, and sometime between then and there, the water turns to wine. And notice that Jesus does this miracle in secret because the head man, the head honcho didn't even know where the wine had come from, but the other servants knew. So Jesus is, is, is working behind the scenes once again. And, and notice what we have here. In the previous point, we learned about the dilemma. That they had run out of wine at this wedding celebration in Cana. And we discussed the fact that this reminds us that we live in a fallen and broken world. This, this, this dilemma reminds us that the best made plans can fall through because of the world in which we live. But notice what else we have here. We learn that when Jesus comes on the scene, he takes that which is broken... That which is messed up. He takes this blunder, this goof up, this mess up, and he fixes it. He comes into this situation that is messed up, and he restores and redeems it. They run out of wine, and Jesus replenishes their supply. We, we learn a very important characteristic about Jesus here. We learn that he is redeemer. He takes a broken and botched situation and fixes it. He takes that which is fallen, that which is ruined and wrecked because of sin, and he restores and he redeems it. He, he proves here, proves that here in this miracle and in others that he performs in his earthly ministry. And notice, he, doesn't only, he not only fixes it, but he makes it better. He makes it better. Notice what the master says about the wine in verse 10. He says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So we see here, not only has Jesus performed a miracle, but he's performed a quality miracle. A miracle would have been for Jesus to give them what they had before. But notice that Jesus gives them something even better. Jesus provides for the party in a way that's needed, but he surpasses the expectations. He gives them wine that is far better, far superior to the original. And again, we see here through this miracle, this is the work that Jesus has come to do in our world. 
He has come to restore our broken world, but not just that. He has come to redeem it and restore it in a way that it, it, in, in a way that's better than it is initially. He did not simply come to fix things. He did not come to, to make things exactly the way they were before, but he came to make things better than they had ever been. I know some of you are here this morning who are truly feeling the weight of the first point, that the world in which we live is broken. Many of you are feeling the weight of this broken and fallen world this morning. Maybe due to a physical illness or a loss of a loved one or because of financial difficulties, whatever it is. And maybe you're questioning God. You're saying, why God? Why is this happening to me? Well, God answers it for us in his word. It's because we live in a broken world. But guess what? That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Though God tells us that these difficulties that we face in life come as a result of living in a broken and fallen world, though that's the case, we learn in his word that Jesus has come into this world to take that which is broken and restore and redeem it, making it better than it ever was before. It's a great truth, isn't it? He came to do that. He did that. He is doing that, and he will do that. That's what Jesus is in the business of doing. Jesus has come to heal and redeem and restore this broken world. But it goes even deeper than that. You know, not only is our world broken, but we are broken. But the great truth is, not only has Jesus come to redeem a broken world, he has come to redeem a broken people. We learn that truth in our next story when Jesus cleanses the temple in verses 13 through 22. Just like there are two truths we discovered in the previous story, there are two truths here as well. Let's look at it. In this story, we learn, once again, not only is the world broken, but we are broken. You see, the problem cuts much deeper than just the world being broken. The problem is, we as a people, we are broken. And let me show you where we see this here in our story. Look at verses 13 through 15. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Well, he ruined their party, didn't he? So here we learn. Jesus goes to Jerusalem for Passover and when he gets there he goes to the temple and, and when he gets to the temple he finds that people are uh, in the temple selling animals and exchanging money and this makes Jesus very angry so he makes a whip and he drives these people out of the, out of the temple along with their sheep and their oxen and he pours out their money and he overturns their tables now I want you to understand something about this story that is key for you to understand this business of selling animals and exchanging money was not a bad thing. It wasn't. 
In fact, it was a very helpful service at the time of Passover. You see, every year for Passover, people would come from all around and they would come to Jerusalem. And and when they went, they needed an animal to take to the temple to be sacrificed. And to bring an animal for some was very difficult because they had a long way to travel. So it was very inconvenient. For some, so many would wait until they got to Jerusalem and they would purchase an animal when they got there. So those selling animals provided a a helpful service for those coming in from out of town. The money changers also provided a helpful service as well. You see, every Jewish male 20 years of age or older had to pay an annual temple tax. We find that in Exodus 30 and in, in Matthew 17. But... It could not be paid using Roman currency or Roman coinage, which was the common currency at the time. It had to be paid using Jewish or Tyrrhenian currency because of the purity of the silver content. So foreigners had to come in and they had to exchange their money for acceptable coinage to pay the temple tax. They had to have it exchanged. And the money changers provided that service. So again... Nothing wrong with these businesses. In fact, they were very helpful for those coming in from out. It provided a much-needed service for the Jews wanting to participate in Passover. So if that's the case, why does Jesus get angry? What upsets him here? Here's the reason. Because of the manner in which these people were conducting their business and because of where they were conducting it. You see... It was reported at this time that the businessmen in this day, the Jewish businessmen, they had a monopoly on the market. And the money changers were charging overpriced fees to exchange money. And and those selling animals were driving up the prices as well. And they were exploiting and extorting those needing their services. So this probably upsets Jesus a bit. But, But they were also doing it in the temple. They were doing this business in the temple, disrupting the worship of others. And and for these reasons, Jesus gets angry and he drives them out and says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So we see here that Jesus is angry at these money changers and, and these salesmen and at what the temple had become. This upsets him. It's supposed to be a place where they're remembering the great work that God had done in the past to redeem his people. It was to be a place where worship was to take place, where God was to be worshiped for who he is and for what he's done. It was to be a place where people could go and and pray. It was also a place where the God-fearing Gentiles at this time could go and worship. But all of that was being disrupted by these salesmen and money changers. The temple had been transformed from a house of worship to the marketplace where people were making profits off of those wanting to participate in worship during the Passover. And this angers Jesus and it forces him to drive these people out. Now many often ask, did Jesus sin here? By getting angry and getting a whip and driving people out, turning over tables. And the answer, of course, is no, because the anger he felt was righteous and holy anger. And notice here, even the onlookers knew that. They even had that 
that perspective, look at verse 17. His disciples, after witnessing Jesus' actions here, remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They remembered this Old Testament verse of Scripture in Psalm 69, and they see that it is fulfilled in Jesus. It was Jesus' zeal for his Father's house that consumed him and that led him to cleanse the temple. And again, the reason for him doing this was because the Jewish people had made the holy house of worship a house of trade. They had turned this worship place into a marketplace. So we see right here a great demonstration, folks, of how broken people can be. You have here in one of the most holy sites in all the world at this time, in the temple of Jerusalem, worldliness and even corruption. Though they were providing a good service, and though even making a bit of a profit's not wrong, it was the motives behind what they were doing and the manner with which they were conducting business in their place where they were running business that was wrong. They were no longer interested in serving other fellow worshipers by uh, providing them with money needed for the temple tax and, and, and animals for sacrifice. They were consumed with extorting and exploiting people for a profit. And they no longer associated the temple with worship but with, with business. So we learn here, people are broken, aren't they? They are. And oftentimes we learn this lesson not by looking at what people do, but the motives behind why they do what they do. That's very much the case here. You know, at times our, our, our girls will disobey, and I'll catch them in the act, and out of fear of punishment, they'll say, I'm sorry, Dad, I'm sorry, you know. Edie's favorite line is, I'll never do it again, Dad. Never, never. Yeah. Never say never, right? Because about 15 minutes later, she's doing it again. No, it's good they say they're sorry and that they're going to change. Nine times out of ten, they're going through the motions to avoid punishment. They're meeting the letter of the law by saying, I'm sorry, but their hearts are far from where they're supposed to be. And that's the way we are. It is. Oftentimes, we're in the right place doing the right things providing services just like the people in the temple were. A lot of the times we're, we're doing the right things externally, but the problem is deep down in, in our hearts and our motives and our attitudes, they're, they're far from where they need to be. They are. So we learn from Christ in, in, in chapter 2 of John that, that not only is the world broken, but we are broken. Our hearts are broken deep down. We're so broken that even when we do the right things, oftentimes it's for the wrong reasons. So again, that's the bad news. Here's the good news. Final point. Though we are broken, Jesus has come to redeem us. Though we are broken, Jesus has come to redeem us. We learn in this story that Jesus comes on the scene to purify the temple. But, but more importantly, we learn that he comes to purify us. But before this can happen, there is a key principle that all of us must learn, and it's this. I want you to get this. If you want Jesus to redeem you, you must first allow him to rebuke you. And that's not easy for a lot of folks. That's key. 
Though Jesus came to redeem people, before redeeming them, he had to rebuke them. And the same is true for us. Later in this book, we'll learn that that Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. And you know what light does, right? It exposes darkness. Before you can have the light of life, you have to allow Jesus to expose your darkness. That's key. That's what Jesus has come to do. That's why he left the riches of heaven and became one of us for this reason. This is why he cleanses the temple here. He's saying through this act that he has come to rebuke as well as save. He's come to expose sin and to purify that which has been contaminated. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, how does he do this? talked earlier about the fact that the world is broken. Jesus has come to redeem it. We are broken. Jesus comes to redeem us. But how? How does he do it? Well, the text tells us, look at John 2, beginning in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up again in in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the Jewish leadership who witnessed Jesus do this They witness his actions in the temple. They come to him, they basically say, who do you think you are, you know? Who are you? By what authority do you do this? They say, show us a sign that tells us, that shows us that you have the authority to do this. And Jesus says, you you want a sign? I'll show you a sign. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm going to raise it up. And they respond with, what are you talking about? You know, this guy's lost his mind. It's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Yeah, right, Jesus, you know. But of course, Jesus is not referring to the the physical building, though he could have done that. He's God. But we learn in verse 21 that Jesus is referring to himself, to his own physical body. He says here, you want to know by what authority I do this? I will tell you. There is coming a day when you're going to destroy my temple. You're going to crucify me, and in three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. And that will be your sign to show you that I have the authority to do these things, that I am who I claim to be. That's your sign that I have authority. Right there. So how does this verse explain to us how Jesus restores this broken world and more importantly, us? How does Jesus redeem both it and us? Here it is. This is incredible, folks. He does it by becoming broken for us in our place. Last week in John 1, we talked about God taking on flesh and dwelling among us. We talked about the fact that God left the riches of heaven and took on flesh and came to live with us and for us. And here in chapter 2, we learn that the way he redeems us is not just by becoming one of us, but by allowing himself to be broken for us. Though we and the world around us are broken, listen, 
Jesus enters into this picture and becomes broken for us. In fact, he experiences brokenness to the greatest degree by dying in our place on our behalf. But then three days later, like he said, he proves to be victorious over death by overcoming it and rising from the grave. He did that for us so that we might experience redemption. Scripture is clear that if we will look to Jesus and trust in Him and in Him alone for salvation, if we will look to the work that He has done on our behalf, we too can experience His resurrection. We too can participate in conquering death. We too can participate in the redemption that He came to bring. Isn't that great news? If you're here this morning, you have yet to experience this redemption. Things can change for you right now, right here and now. You can be put back together this morning. You can be redeemed. You can be made new, better than you've ever been before. But before that can happen, there are two things you must do. Number one, you must confess that you're broken. You must come to the realization that you are broken. You must realize that even at times when you do the right things, it's often for the wrong reasons. And you must must realize your brokenness and confess that before God. And number two, you must realize that Jesus has become broken for you and you must accept his saving work on your behalf. If you've never made this decision, I pray you would this morning. Let's pray.